has to be Walt Disney World. I love it. How many of you have a chance to go there? If you have, yeah. So if somebody, you, you understand. If I'm honest, maybe almost to where it's a little unhealthy, there is this kind of rush that comes over me from setting foot on the grounds of the theme park and instantly you're met with the music and the the sights and the sounds and the smells and they just kind of sweep you away into this magical world that they call Disney. Now, I love the rides. I'm a little bit different. I'm I'm the biggest rider in my family. My Carmen, she doesn't care anything about them. So I spend a good bit of my vacation there, the times we've gone. I spend a good bit of my time there with strangers in the single passenger line. And, uh, you know, I'm standing with all these little kids, and I'm like, what's your story? You know, how did you get here? You know, and, and I, I, but I love doing the rides. I love the food. I love the entertainment. You know, to be, to be honest, and, you know, uh, as I've gotten older, I absolutely love the production that is the theme park. And I don't mean the stage shows and I specifically or the character experiences because we all know those aren't produced. They're real talking animals. And, but, but the way that Disney actually pulls this thing off. I mean, think of the number of people that walk through those gates and everything that has to take place to make this happen. And I'm amazed at how despite the number of people that come in and out all hours of the night, the place doesn't shut down. I'm amazed at how clean and how well-maintained everything is. You know, the grounds are always immaculate, but yet you never see or hear any weed eaters or blowers, lawnmowers, hedge trimmers. You don't see any of that. It's just always perfect. You know, the trash is never overflowing, it's never overflowing, but yet you never see anybody walking down the street putting a, pushing a trash can. You know, they're never out of food. Everywhere you turn, there are things to eat and there are things to enjoy. It's just all right there for the taking. And for the most part, everybody is happy. The workers are happy. The people that are coming are happy. You know, except for those few parents who are beating their kids into submission, you know. Young man, you will have a good time today. I think it's hilarious that parents will kind of jack their kids up on sugar and candy all day long and then keep them up to about midnight and then drag them up about 7 a.m. and go, I just don't know why they're in such a bad mood. They're Disney. You know? It's literally a magical place and has been given the self-proclaimed tagline of being the happiest place on earth. And the amazing thing to me about Disney is that all, out of all of the elements of life that involve work and dinginess and dirtiness have been swept away from you having to be in the middle of it where you literally have a bit of a break from reality. In fact, they have a term for it. It's called Disneyfication. You know, we love Disney because all the things that remind us of reality and the brokenness in life have been removed from us for a season. We don't think about our pain and our problems because they're removed from us. They sweep those things away from us. And so there actually is a word, Disneyfication. It means the transformation of something unsettling into carefully controlled and safe entertainment or an environment with similar qualities. And the reality is we often attempt to put our lives through a process of Disneyfication because we want to remove from us 
the presence and the reality of brokenness. We want to live in a neighborhood that is completely safe and gated and we block out the broken world from us. We want to remove our children from the influence of any kind of outside negative influence that would give them a hint of the brokenness that is the reality of our world. We want to surround ourselves with people who think just like us, who act just like us, who dress just like us, who talk just like us, and who carry the exact same values and morals that we do. We want to block the outside world from having any presence in our lives. And we want to remove as best we can the brokenness of life from our present reality. And to be honest with you, Disneyfication can leak into our church settings where we want to create a perfect environment, where we come and pretend life is not really going the way it is going. We want to remove any of the negative that is life and replace it with the positive and give a break, if you will, in reality from what we're really struggling with. And so we create spaces where we cover up our problems and our fears and our failures because we don't want to mess up the mojo of perfection in our church. We surround ourselves with people who financially and who socially and spiritually think and act just like we do so that our environment is not tainted and that it's perfect and everybody looks and acts and feels and experiences the same thing. Now we know that our reasoning behind this is that inside of all of us there is an internally planted longing for God to restore all things back to the way they were created to be. We long for the garden We long for God to restore us. We long to hear the words where Christ returns and he wipes away every tear from every eye and he ends all pain and suffering. We long for that. Paul writes to the church in Corinth that we long to put on our heavenly dwelling. He says that while we are here on this earth, we are just in a temporary tent, but inwardly we are longing for our permanent home with God. We always join with the writer of Revelation and say, come, Lord Jesus, come. But what I'm afraid begins to happen is that our longing for our lives to be completely removed from the brokenness that is our reality leads us to being completely removed from the purpose and the reason why we are here in this life for this season until eternity. We live in a broken world. Our city is broken. We brush shoulders every single day with people who need hope. But at the expense of their hopelessness, we don't pay the price to dirty up our lives with theirs. If it is inconvenient, we want nothing to do of it because it might mess up the reality we have created for ourselves. And so what we find is that our city lays waste in the brokenness of sin and its effects in our circumstances. And we who have been called to be city builders, to be a city on a hill, a light to the world, to be establishing this holy city, ushering in this kingdom that God is restoring, we've become complacent and removed from those we have been called to be the light towards. You and I have been placed here to dirty our hands and our feet and point people to the only one who can bring any resemblance of hope to this madness. And so in the book of Nehemiah, we see a similar thing taking place. 
a man who sees the brokenness around him and chooses to inconvenience life to play his part in seeing a city restored. Now, to set the stage before we read in Nehemiah, I want to I want to kind of brush with broad strokes how the nation of Israel has gotten to the place that they find themselves. And I feel like every sermon I preach, I end up back in the garden. And so I don't have that much time today to go to Genesis. So I'll go back to Exodus. And so in the book of Exodus, the nation of Israel, God's chosen people have found themselves in captivity to the nation of Egypt. But as you know, Israel's God's chosen people. And God holds true on his promises. And he calls the nation of Israel under the leadership of Moses out of captivity in Egypt and leads them to the border of the promised land that God had committed in his covenant to them that he would lead them to. It was a beautiful land. It was a land flowing with milk and honey. But at the cusp of this deliverance, the people of Israel doubted the goodness of God and they doubted his grace and they doubted his power and provision. So God allowed them to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. Well, then under Joshua, since Moses had disobeyed God and he had, he had not followed the instructions that God had told him when he, when he was to bring water to the people, he would, Moses would never see the promised land and Joshua was the one who would take them into that place. And God leads the people into the promised land. Most of the generation who doubted would die in the the wilderness before ever seeing the promised land. But God would be faithful to his people and he would lead them to where he had promised and he would give them what he had promised to give them. So he drives out any nations that oppose them and he establishes this kingdom where they would reign. But the Israelites, as they always do, were, were not satisfied in that. They begin looking around. They begin looking at all the other nations and they, all, they begin wondering, why do all these other nations have a king and we don't have a king? We want a king. So God gives them the desires of their heart, even though it was not his will for the nation. And he gives them a king. And man, does he give them a king. He chooses a stud of all men by choosing Saul, who would be the king over them. Saul was tall, dark, and handsome, muscles on top of muscles. He was a man's man. They say, scriptures teach us that he was larger than all the other men. He was what you would picture a king to be. But Saul was not outside of the fall. And he would eventually disobey God in offering up a sacrifice in the place of the high priest. And he, he acted out of, his, out of God's plan and will. And so God would eventually remove him as king and he would replace him with another king. As we know from our reading that this king would be David. We read where the spirit of God leaves Saul and rests on David. But now David was kind of the opposite. We go from foot taller Saul to the harp player who his father did not even bring him before to to be anointed as a potential king Because he's like, absolutely, it's going to be one of my other sons, not David. He's out working. But now David was a man. It says that he protected his sheep. He would kill predators with his bare hands. He eventually would kill Goliath and he would rule over Israel. David, though, would eventually die. And then would turn his kingdom over to his son Solomon. Solomon would go and he would build the temple that God had instructed. And peace is over the nation of Israel. Israel is flourishing, becomes this national powerhouse. In Solomon's reign, we see the nation of Israel, though, once again fall away 
and actually split into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom would be called Israel. The southern kingdom would be called Judah. And the northern kingdom was an absolute wreck. They had wicked king after wicked king after wicked king. And eventually they would be defeated and the Syrians would take over the land and the kingdom that God had given to them and he would basically spread, they would spread the Israelites across the ancient empire. Well, a little bit later, the, 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 the southern kingdom had done a little better, but they eventually were taken over as well by the Babylonians. And in the meantime, the Babylonians had defeated the Assyrians and then Persia shows up and beats Babylon. And so now Persia is in charge of the kingdom that God had given to them. And in 2 Chronicles, we read where the Holy Spirit leads Cyrus, one of the kings of Persia, to let at least a portion of the Jews return to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple that laid waste. The temple which represented the presence of God in their kingdom was laying waste. So now we get to the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, which are basically running simultaneously. And we get to Nehemiah chapter 1. And we're going to see that Nehemiah is serving as a cupbearer to the king of Persia. He lives in a swanky palace about 800 miles away from Jerusalem. His life has gone through major Disneyfication. You name it, it was perfect for him. He is drinking wine for a living at a palace. So I want us to read together what happens in Nehemiah chapter 1, beginning with verse 1. It says, Now it happened in the month of Chislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hananiah, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And Nehemiah asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and the gates are destroyed by fire. Now you have to realize here, this is bad news for Jerusalem. There is great significance in the, in the man from Judah's, Judah's words when he said that the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and the gates have been destroyed by fire. This was the protection of the city. Without your walls and without your gates, you were open to plundering by any passerby that came through. In Proverbs 25, 28, there actually is an analogy used to describe self-control and it compares it to this. When it says a man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. It was important. They had to have this to protect the city of Jerusalem. Let's continue reading. Nehemiah says, as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, oh Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keeps his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. He says, look, I'm 800 miles away, but our nation, we sinned against you, God. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments and the statutes and the rules 
that you commanded your servant Moses. So remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and you keep my commandments and do them, though your outcast are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and I will bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O oh Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your, of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. And now I was cupbearer to the king. So Nehemiah is completely removed from the reality of his city. He's living the dream. Sheltered from the brokenness around him. But yet he is broken with compassion for his city. A man who is immune from the effects of the, of the, the fall of the city, but yet is compassionate and weeping. Now the king of Persia, who he worked for, had picked up on the fact that Nehemiah was not himself. His whole persona had just been trashed, and the king notices and asked him in chapter 2 what had happened. And if you look in verse 3, Nehemiah said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad? When the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins, and its gates have been destroyed by fire. And then the king said to me, what are you requesting? And Nehemiah says, so I prayed to the God of heaven. Hmm, that's significant. And this is what he said to the king. If it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king goes on to say, how long are you going to be gone? What do you need? Nehemiah says, hey, will you write me some letters along the way to get me through the kingdoms and get the supplies I need? And the king says, do it. And so Nehemiah, he goes back and he inspects the walls of Jerusalem. When he gets there, he meets opposition from two men because they were not looking out for the welfare of Israel. They were threatened by anyone who was. And Nehemiah rallies his troops. And in verse 20 of chapter 2, it says that the God, he tells them, the God of heaven will make us prosper and we, his servants, will arise and build. So we get to chapter 3 and the work has begun, but something interesting has happened because in chapter 3, it begins to list who's doing the work. And they didn't go out and get the contractor and say, get your hired hands and come do this. There's all kinds of people. There are priests building. There are the men of Jericho. In verse 8, it says that goldsmiths were building right next to perfumers, people that made perfume. They were all just in there together working to rebuild the city. It says there were rulers of districts that were building next to Levites. And there were temple servants who were building next to the merchants from the city. Everyone was contributing to the rebuilding project. And it goes on in chapter four to go on to describe, for the sake of time, I won't read it, but it goes on to say that these two guys who opposed them, they return. And, and it gets to the point that as they are rebuilding, Nehemiah and them see the opposition. They see the, the people that are coming against them to stop the work. And they literally are building while some of them are protecting with swords. So they are protecting and they are prepared, but they are continuing the work despite the opposition. The opposition's coming. They're going, we're going to keep building the wall. Remember, the Lord is going to make us prosper. And he says in verse 22, it says, let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem that they may be a guard for us by night and may labor 
by day. And so neither I nor my brothers nor my servants nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes. Each kept his weapon at his right hand and they protected the work that was taking place. Now for our time together this morning, I want to stop our story here. We're going to finish it next week. But for our time together this morning and then next week, I want to point out six characteristics that I see from the book of Nehemiah about a people who are rebuilding a city. And what I hope that we're going to see from this is we're going to see as we work to be a city on a hill that there are certain things that you and I have to have in our hearts if we want to see the kingdom and the evidence of it ushered into our city that we are serving herein. Now, as I read this and as I studied this passage, kind of a question that came to mind for me is what parts of this story are descriptive? What parts of this story are prescriptive? You know, is God just wanting to tell us what happened? Or is he trying to tell us a description of what our hearts should look like? But what I believe we learn from this story is very much prescriptive. That God wants to show us characteristics of a people broken for a city who are wanting to usher in this spiritual city in the midst of the brokenness. So I want us to see six things. We'll look at a couple this morning and then we'll finish next week. But first of all, I think people, the characteristics of a city builder is first of all, people of compassion. People of compassion. Chapter one, verse four, it says that as soon as Nehemiah, Nehemiah living the dream, he's, he's tasting the wine for the, the king. It says when he heard these words, he sat down and he wept and he mourned for days, for days. Now this is an odd verse if you take it at face value. Nehemiah is the cupbearer to the king. He is living in a palace 800 miles removed from the city that he is weeping over. He basically samples the wine for the king to be sure that as they give him wine and as he goes to drink it, they're making sure it's not poison, that someone's not trying to kill the king. This was his job, to protect the king. So he was right there in the inner circle with the king. He's eating good food, living in luxury, no threat from any outside force, as the nation of Persia at this moment did not have any opposition coming at them. So there was no fear of war. There was no fear of the kingdom crumbling. There was no fear of substance. There was no fear of anything. He had all he wanted. But yet, when he hears about the condition of his people, He spends days and weeks weeping for the people of Jerusalem. When is the last time that the broken condition of people led you to weep for them? When is the last time that you were able to lay aside this perfect life that you and I are striving for in order to feel and empathize with those who are hurting, with those who are poor, and with those who are in great need. The building that we are sitting in this morning and worshiping in lies in the middle of great need. There is poverty literally all around us. And the poverty extends beyond just a literal circumstance into a spiritual circumstance. God has placed us to work in an area of great need. So I kind of want to take both of these. First of all, I believe we have a calling to show compassion towards the literal poor around us. We are positioned in life 
in what is considered to be blessed people in the middle of a section of our city that represents quite possibly the poorest area in our city. Hattiesburg's poverty level is about 12% higher than the state average, 16% higher than the national average. In 2012, there was a survey done that estimated that the poverty rate of Hattiesburg to be about 35.7%. And when you look at that from a global perspective, though we may not have much, you and I are wealthy. More than one-third of the world's population lives on $2 a day, or roughly 60 bucks a month. But yet, we so often harbor the blessings of God for our own benefit. You and I have been positioned to be a blessing, to be an extension of us receiving grace from God and letting that flow to other people. In Deuteronomy chapter 16, verse 17, it says this, Every man shall give as he is able, according to the blessing of the Lord your God that he has given you. So when God blesses, our response to the blessing is not just to hoard up the blessings. And as the Bible would later say, to build bigger barns and continue to upgrade our stuff. The blessings of God were never intended to terminate on us. Now, I'm not saying we aren't to enjoy God's blessings on our life. And I'm not saying it's bad to have nice things. But what I think we must be careful in is seeing that all we have is a blessing from him that should overflow from us for the purpose of God. Through God's blessings, we know that he has been gracious to us and he has freed us to be unbelievably gracious towards others. Let me lay this verse out in 1 John chapter 3, verse 16. Listen to this. By this we know love, that God laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. If anyone has the world's goods, And sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him. How does God's love abide in him? He says, little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Wow. If anyone sees his brother in need and closes his heart, how does the love of God abide in him? Let me share a couple others. Hebrews 13, verse 16 says, Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Proverbs 14, 31, Whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker, but he who is generous to the needy honors him. James 1, 27, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father, is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. One final one, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Jesus' heart was for the poor. Nehemiah saw the poor and the oppressed, and he was broken with compassion. It motivated him to move beyond his circumstances to do something about the need. May God give us a bigger heart for those who are broken in life. But second, we have a calling to compassion for those who are spiritually poor. In Matthew chapter 9, Jesus is going through the cities and villages around him, and he is driven to compassion. 
But what is interesting to me is that not, was, he wasn't just driven to compassion by their physical needs. But listen to this. It says, when Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them. But listen, why? Because they were harassed and they were helpless like sheep without a shepherd. He was driven to compassion because they were wanderers. They had no one to lead them. And he's like, and he sees their need. And he says to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, pray to the Lord of the harvest. Pray for them that he might send out laborers into the harvest. Our world rallies around social justice. There are many opportunities to engage in ending the injustice that's taking place in society, and they are all very honorable. But the greater injustice that we can cause humanity to experience is to see the spiritual poverty of their souls and to refuse to provide for them the substance that their hungry souls need for life. The majority of the world's population today does not know Jesus. If God were to return as we speak, only about a third of the world's population would spend eternity with God. So are you compassionate for our city and our world? If not, may we pray that God gives us a bigger heart to be broken. The heart of God is for serving each other as a spiritual family not adding to the oppression of the poor, caring deeply for the fatherless because we were spiritually fatherless and we have been adopted as sons and daughters. We're to care deeply for the stranger, to care deeply for the poor. In a discussion of the end times, Jesus even compares it to service. He's the, the people that are serving him, he says, they say, when did we see you sick? Or, or when did we come and visit you? When did we clothe you? And Jesus says, whatever you did to one of the least of these brothers of mine, you have done to me. So at the heart of God is the service for those in need. May we be a people of compassion. And secondly, may we, may we be a people that pray and fast. People that pray and fast. Nehemiah chapter one, verse four, it says that Nehemiah continued to fast and pray before God of heaven. In chapter two, Nehemiah is before the king and the king asked him what his request was. And before he lays out a strategy, before he tells his plan, He says, I prayed to the God of heaven. Nehemiah first begins to pray upon hearing of the news. Says it happened in the month of Chislev and discusses a plan with the king in the month of Nisan or about a span of four months. So from the moment that Nehemiah finds out to where he lays out his plan, he prays and fasts and weeps and mourns for four months The rebuilding of the city and the temple took about 52 days, but he spends four months seeking God. So what did they see as essential? You know, people that are fueled by compassion will be people who are pushed to pray and fast as their heart has been moved. Nehemiah, before he proposes this plan and starts organizing his team and getting the letters and the materials together on how to rebuild the city, he falls before God through prayer and fasting. 
Church, I can tell you, if we want to see our city rocked for the kingdom of God, if we want to see a gospel movement happen through our city, we want to see people transform for the glory of God, it will not begin on a whiteboard through strategies. It will not begin with methods and techniques. It will not begin with culturally relevant packaged programming and services. It won't come from books on how to change the city and the world. It won't come through better training and development of leaders. It will come when God's people fall on their faces before him, praying and fasting for him, desperate to see him move, and completely reliant on the Holy Spirit to transcend and transform our culture with the news of the gospel. That's when a movement's gonna happen. So I pray, will you covenant as a body to pray to pray for each other, to pray for our faith family, to pray for your pastors, to pray for your elders, to pray for your leaders, to pray for our city, to pray for our nation, to pray for our world. Will we be broken to where we pray and fast and seek? May we be a people that pray and fast. And then lastly, may we be a people with proper perspective. Really quickly in chapter one, verse five, Nehemiah says, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. He says, let your ear be attentive and your, your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel. Confessing the sins of people. Even I and my father's house have sinned and we have acted corruptly. <clears throat> so what kind of perspective did Nehemiah have? We're gonna be a people of compassion, a people that pray and fast. We gotta be a people with proper perspective. First of all, we see that he had a proper perspective of who God is. <clears throat> Look at the words Nehemiah uses to describe God. Great, awesome. The God who is steadfast in his love. <clears throat> a covenant keeper. So do you see what's happening here? The people of Israel are scattered all over the place. They have lost the promised land. God promised them that he would give them this land and it was, it was overtaken. They were captive. Nothing appears to reflect a God who is faithful to keep his covenant. But Nehemiah has a proper view that God is a faithful, loving God. And when even his circumstances did not dictate or show it, God would faithfully provide for them. And he believed that. He had a proper perspective of God. But then he had a proper perspective of who we are. Nehemiah continues the prayer by confessing the sins of the nation of Israel. Not only does he confess the sins of Israel, but he confesses the sins of his own household. He had every right to be able to say, well, we, my family's done pretty well because I'm sitting here sipping wine with the king. But he says, my own household, we failed you, God, we failed you. He had a proper perspective of who he was. He did not see this elevated view of himself and his blessings but he understood that all have rebelled and all need to extend compassion. So why is this important to us? Financially, if you see yourself in your position as being a recipient of God's grace, if you miss to see that you are a recipient of God's grace and instead you see that it is a benefit of your hard work and your success, then you will have a hard time showing empathy to those who are impoverished. Socially, if you see your life as being the way it is because you're awesome and you have raised awesome kids and made awesome decisions, 
and not because God is gracious, then your response to those different from you who struggle in those areas will be, why didn't you do as awesome as I did? And then you will not be in the place that you were in. Spiritually, if we don't see ourselves as at one point being spiritually bankrupt and once in need of absolute rescue, but we see ourselves instead as an entitled people, then you will have a hard time extending compassion to those who are spiritually orphaned. And next week, we'll continue to walk through this story to see the other remaining characteristics. But let me offer in closing just a couple of applications for us today. If we want to actively be about the work to see God rebuild our broken world, we have to first of all demonstrate compassion toward our faith family and our broken world. For many of you, if you are honest, you have found yourself growing a heart of indifference and coldness towards our world. For you, your world revolves around your own agenda and your own life to where you have lost the inability to see the needs of others. Maybe you're here today and your life is full of judgment towards others. You're critical of others' weaknesses and failings. You're prideful in your successes and judgmental of their failures. I wanna ask you this morning to pray that the Holy Spirit will soften your heart that God will challenge you to see that maybe you are just kind of being a sponge, consuming all you can from him, but being unwilling to get into the trenches and rebuild the walls. Secondly, we got to devote ourselves to prayer and fasting. We realize that as a church and as leaders of this church, we have not unlocked the secret to transforming our world. We do not have a secret strategy. One of the wisest things I was ever told is that in discipleship, there are no shortcuts, there are no secrets, and there's no silver bullets. We need the Spirit to move. And I do know that if God is going to do a work through us, we have to cling to Him in prayer. We have to fast for our city. We have to fast for each other. We have to fast for the nations. I read a quote from a, 19, a minister from the 19, early 1900s that said this, the one concern of the devil is to keep Christians from praying. It says he fears nothing from prayerless studies, prayerless work, and prayerless religion. He laughs at our toil. He mocks at our wisdom, but he trembles when we pray. May you and I be a people of prayer and fasting. And finally, may we demonstrate an attitude of humility. Our motivation for compassion to those around us will not be sustained by staggering statistics, guilt-laced sermons, or constant begging. I cannot convince you enough of the need for you to have a sustained movement. Our motivation for compassion is when we realize who God is and who we are, and we realize the depth of compassion that was shown to us by God through Jesus. You want a motivation for compassion? Try this one on. For God demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In just a moment, we're gonna remember just what he did for us. When we take the bread that's been broken and we dip it into the cup as a remembrance of this great compassion shown to us.
So I pray that as we do that this morning, we will realize the level of compassion that God was willing to extend through his son to redeem us. May we be a people of compassion, a people of prayer, and a people with a proper perspective. Let's pray together. God, I thank you this morning for this challenge in my, on, on me, God. It is so easy to get so caught up in the role that you have me playing, God, that I can easily write off my responsibility as being satisfied through this leadership you've placed me in. And I repent of that, God. God, I pray for a brokenness to be compassionate for those, God, who need you in this world. God, your heart was for the poor, both in circumstances and in spirit. God, will you break our hearts as a church for those who need to hear the good news of Jesus, God, that through our service, our tangible service to meet their physical needs, that we will have the opportunity to show them of a greater need that they, that they have. That's a need for you. God, will you convict us as a church to be a people who fall on our faces in prayer before you? God, may we not depend on education and experience, strategies, charisma, our packaging. God, may we not rely on those things, but may we be a people who realize the only thing that's gonna change this world is when your, pe- when, when your people pray and we ask you to move through us. We ask you to, to empower us through your spirit. God, may you constantly remind us of a proper perspective of who you are as holy perfect and may you give us a good perspective of us God as unholy and imperfect and at that point may you remind us of Jesus that through your son we have forgiveness that you have chosen to see the holiness of your son in place of our unholiness God, may it bring us to a place of gratitude for you accomplishing what we could not. So God, this morning, I pray for those in this room. God, I pray for those who who you are calling this morning, God, to a deeper level of compassion. God, as a church, may you help us not to consume all that you've blessed us with, but may we be a blessing to others. And God, spiritually speaking, if there's anyone here, Father, who has never come to a place of acceptance of your salvation through your son, God, that today will be that day. God, we love you and we thank you for your challenge on us this morning. And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. During this time, we'd like for you to be able to come and to, to give of your offering, to take of the, the bread that's been broken and dip it into the juice as a remembrance of what Christ has done in your life. So we ask during this time that you, you, you pray, you worship, and you come when you're prepared, and you take of the, of the, the 
uh, sacraments this morning. If, if you need prayer, if you need some, someone just to talk with this morning, myself, I'll be in the back. Dan will be in the back. Uh, some of our other elders will be back there. It would be love to talk to you and pray with you. Let this be a time where you, you, you respond to God as he is leading you. So if you will, let's stand together.